morning, everyone. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, two weeks ago in our, uh, in our World Changer series, we reached that part of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus begins addressing and speaking into a number of heart issues, where he starts taking his teaching to what seems like, like a whole other far deeper level. And Jesus had said, and this kind of stopped everybody in their tracks, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so whenever people heard this, it became increasingly apparent to them that the kind and quality of righteousness that Jesus was talking about doesn't work from the outside in, but actually operates from the inside out. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus starts explaining from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 following, what this internal transformation looks like and what it actually means in the lives of this new community, his new community of the called, the blessed, the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. And a fortnight ago, we we looked at what Jesus said and taught about anger. And this morning, we come to the second big heart issue. And if anger was a challenging enough subject to consider then this one definitely is as well. Because today we're going to talk about lust and about sex and about adultery. And so this is another one of those weeks when I desperately wanted to throw a sickie. (laughs) Because these are not easy issues to discuss in any context let alone this one. And yet it's vital that we do. And so to say that I need help and we need to pray is is an understatement. And thank you for those who are smiling at me rather than those who are going, right, when's the next opportunity to leave? (coughs) This, This material is intensely personal at so many levels. And and it's profoundly heart-searching. Now, 18 months ago, during our Sunday evening series, Deadly Seven, we looked at the lethal sin of lust. And and therefore, I am going to repeat some of what I said that night, but I realize that the vast majority of you were not there that evening. And even those who were have forgotten everything I said. But as we approach these issues, I want us to pause for a moment because we need to recognize the brokenness and the confusion that exists. I think it was Henri Nguyen who said that in terms of our fallenness as human beings, we are most broken in our sexuality. And regarding confusion, the culture we exist in is all over the place on this one. Our society, it seems, is obsessed with sex. References to sex and sexual content dominate the media world in which we live and breathe and have our being. 
Sexual images and innuendo are never too far away. They're found in advertising because, after all, sex sells. Found in song lyrics and music videos, magazines, soaps, movies, casual conversation. They're everywhere. But alongside our culture's fascination with this issue is the disturbing trivialization of it. And then add into that the kind of mixed messages that we and our young people receive from all kinds of directions, and it's no wonder there's mass confusion. And what does the church teach? What does the church say about these critical issues? Some would argue very little. We're pretty silent. When was the last time you heard a sermon on sex? And even when the church does say something, it's often misunderstood or it's confusing in itself. It's more mixed messages. Which is tragic given that we are the guardians of the highest view of sex. So with all of that in mind, and by way of introduction and a backdrop, let's, let's listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32. And again, the intensity and the language used here is captivating. So please, will you stand with me for the public reading of God's words? You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Grab a seat. Again, Jesus just gets right to the heart of the matter. This, this is not just about behavior. You shall not commit adultery. This goes deeper. This, this is about desire. This is about desire that's out of sync and needs to be realigned. Luke, says Jesus, with lustful intent and you commit adultery in your heart. It seems extreme. But the problem and danger with lust is that it distorts and it twists our desires, our God-given desires. And as we begin to think about these issues, it's important to make something very, very clear. God is not anti-sex, contrary to popular opinion. Sex is a God-given gift. R.T. Kendall puts it like this. Sex was not born in Hollywood, but at the throne of grace. 
God gave sex to his creation and created us as sexual beings. And therefore, lust is not the same as sexual desire. Lust is disordered desire. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But we must, as a church and as a Christian community, we must acknowledge right up front and say it. We must acknowledge the goodness of sex. It has been given by God to be enjoyed and enjoyed to its fullest expression within a specific context. Marriage. To bond two people together into this one flesh union. Plus it has been given by God as the act designed to create new human beings. And so it's about love and it's about life. And within this context, the God-given gift of sex between a man and a woman is to be celebrated and enjoyed. Take it out of that context. Take it out of that one flesh union and you, me, and society all around us face all kinds of problems and challenges. In a previous life, whenever, no, I don't really mean that like, but uh, when I used to be a youth worker, just in case anybody thinks I believe in reincarnation, <laughs> let's get that out there. Right, I need to rephrase that. When I was a youth worker, uh, I tried to illustrate this and explain it to young people. And I know there are limits with every illustration, so please don't grab hold of this and really grill me afterwards, okay? But I tried to illustrate it and explain it to young people like this. That would get them to imagine sex is a bit like fire. Fire in its proper context, like your lounge, your living space, even the fire pit in your garden, it's a great thing. It provides warmth and atmosphere and comfort and enjoyment. It enhances life. But you see, if you take it out of that context, fire wreaks havoc. It destroys, it debilitates, it ruins, it spoils, it robs. And sex is exactly the same. You take it out of its God-given context and there will be all sorts of mess. God is not a cosmic killjoy when it comes to sexual desire, but he does know what's best for it regarding its expression. So okay, if sexual desire is a good and healthy thing given to us by God. Lust is very different. Lust is a, is a vice because it does not honor the fullness of sex. The dictionary defines lust as an intense and unrestrained sexual craving. It is the excessive desire for my own sexual pleasure. It becomes about personal satisfaction. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. And so, at the heart of lust is pure selfishness. Pure selfishness. It's a self-gratification project. And so lust thinks of and sees others as a means of getting that satisfaction. It makes people less than people. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Lust objectifies. Lust objectifies. Bill Hybels put it like this. Lust is the reduction of a human being, a person made in the image of God to a body. A thing capable of satisfying them our sexual desires, when we lust, we don't care if that person matters to God. We don't care if that person has brothers or sisters that love him or her or if they have kids or not. 
We only care that this person satisfies our physical needs. Lust happens when one person treats another person as just a body and no more, as an instrument, as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And so lust is bad, not because sex is dirty, but because sexual desire distorted in this way is deeply and cruelly self-centered. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Discipleship, or the, the kind of abridged English version, The Cost of Discipleship, describes lust as desire minus love. Brilliant. Desire minus love. Lust objectifies, love dignifies. And therefore, lust is destructive. Make no mistake, but whenever lust takes hold of a person, it has the potential and the ability to destroy so much their mind, their closest relationships, their reputation, even their body. It can lead to broken and dysfunctional marriages, shame, endless regret, guilt. One biblical example of lust's extreme cost to love and life is the painful story of David and Bathsheba. And I've mentioned this many times before. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And if anything should forever stand or be remembered as a solemn warning against the deadliness of lust, it is this story. David sees, come back to that, David sees an incredibly attractive woman bathing and he wants her and he gets her. But his selfish, distorted sexual desire cost so much. It cost Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, his life. It cost Bathsheba the death of her husband and her child. It cost David a painful rupture in his relationship with God and a subsequent loss of a son. But the damage rippled out even further. Beyond those directly involved, Joab, a general in David's army, was complicit in David's betrayal of Uriah. The whole thing, the whole incident began to spiral out of control. Why? Because of lust. Trust was broken, loyalties undercut, relationships damaged at all levels, lives were lost. Why? Because David entertained this deadly and destructive vice, sin of lust. You see, lust takes sex and it commodifies it. Sex becomes a thing you do, a purely physical act that is just removed from relationship. Graham Tomlin writes, when sex is treated as an only a physical act, it is reduced from the mysterious ecstatic union of two created beings who are bound together inextricably in a lifelong passionate bond to a matter of mechanics. You see, whenever we think of sex in those terms, we forget and we neglect to take seriously the reality that to have sex with someone is to enact the most intimate of human relations. It is to touch them at their deepest level. What we do with our bodies affects our souls and our minds and our hearts. The emotional, psychological, spiritual impact and implications are intense. I'm not sure how many of you have seen the film Indecent Proposal. Came out nearly 20 years ago, starring Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson. But in the film, a young couple are as deeply in debt as they are in love. 
and they are tempted by the invitation from a millionaire played by Robert Redford for the woman played by Demi Moore to spend a night with him in exchange for a million dollars. An indecent proposal. At first, the young couple dismiss the idea. And then they debate what they should do. And finally, they decide to take up his offer. And at that point, Demi Moore's character says one of the most powerful things ever said in a film. Powerful, powerful moment. It's only my body. It's not my soul. And she goes ahead and she spends a night with a millionaire and she returns to her fiancé, thinking, thinking, believing that it was only a physical act. It was only a matter of mechanics. Turns out that the night ruined everything. It brought distrust and pain and tension and eventually led to the breakup of her relationship. It turned out it was not so easy to disentangle body and soul as the couple had imagined. They thought sex with someone else was fine because it only involved this bodily activity. They didn't realize that it would affect their lives at such a profound level. And you see, the truth is we cannot compartmentalize our lives like that. Sex is not simply a thing we do. It's not simply a thing we do. That's why sometimes whenever it comes to this whole issue, and I'm kind of going off tangent, but I'm not going to go too far off tangent. That's why sometimes when it comes to this issue, what young people often hear us saying is, don't have sex. Don't do this. And when we reduce it to a physical act, when we say it's just about what we do and that's the message we give, we miss so much. Because then the discussion spirals into, well then, hang on a minute, if I don't do this, then where do we draw the line? How far is too far and all of that? This is about distorted, twisted desires that need to be transformed and realigned and restored. That was off script. Okay, so lust is selfish. It is disordered, distorted sexual desire. It objectifies people. It commodifies sex. And so it causes us, says Jesus, to commit adultery in our hearts. It wrecks your heart. It warps your heart. And so Jesus addresses it. Why? Well, because Jesus longs to fix hearts. To change us from the inside out. To transform our desires. Back to that off tangent. To transform our desires. To renew them. To save us from untold heartache. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, Jesus tells us what we should do. And it's shocking. Gouge out your eye, cut off your right hand. I was thinking of having an altar call at this point and saying, right, all those who are up for a bit of eye gouging. And... Now, clearly, Jesus is not saying that we should literally remove our eye or dismember ourselves. Though, tragically, there have been those in church history who took these words at face value. Jesus is using hyperbole. 
It's a figure of speech that shows exaggeration. John Stott says, Jesus is not referring to self-maiming. Of course he's not. He's not referring to self-maiming, but to ruthless moral self-denial. Please hear that. Not to mutilation, but to mortification. In other words, what Jesus is really saying, I believe, when it comes to this, because remember, Jesus is speaking to the heart here. He's saying, you've got to get serious about this. You've got to get serious about this. This will wreck your heart. This will wreck your marriage. This will wreck your relationships. You've got to get serious about this. Now, referring to the eye, and I don't actually have time to deal with the the hand. But referring to the eye is clearly deliberate. Because lust is in the eye and in the mind of the beholder. This challenges us to seriously consider what we look at. What have we been looking at? How do we see? How do we see others? And although this probably relates more to men than women because men are more readily stimulated by sight, I know that, this is not exclusive to men. The eye is a vehicle of lust. But whenever you live in such a sexualized, sexually explicit culture and society that bombards us with endless opportunities to lust, you realize that this is such a difficult, topical and relevant heart issue for many, many people. It's why the pornography industry is growing like never before. Now, I don't want to veer off on an issue that is massive in itself. But its impact on the eye and on the heart is undeniable. With the explosion in internet porn, accessible 24-7 now via our countless gadgets, an infinity broadband. The number of people who are using and looking at pornography is soaring. The statistics are depressing. And I know a number of us here were at a conference not that long ago that was organized by organizations that Drew works for here, like Love for Life, on this whole issue called porn scars. And the statistics are depressing, including amongst Christian men and women. There is very little difference, folks between those within the church and outside of the church. And Harriet Walker, writing in the I newspaper over a year ago, said this, I am amazed and baffled, sometimes heartbroken, by the fact that porn is now as normal a part of a young man's leisure time as, say, video games or football. There is no shame about porn. It's just something everybody does. That's the world we live in. When Jesus spoke into these issues 2,000 years ago, the relevance it may be disturbingly true that it's just something everybody does. But if we're going to be transformed from the inside out, we're going to avoid committing adultery in our hearts, 
then we're going to need to take seriously the intention of Jesus' words. If your, right hand, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And that may mean different things for different people. But it's about taking it seriously. In confronting distorted desires, the objectifying of others, and the commodification of sex, we're going to need to think very carefully about how we see and what images fill our eyes. I think one of the most intriguing lines in the book of Job, and there are many, but there is this comment that he makes. Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Do you know, this is about making a very strong advance commitment to living differently. Here was Job ahead of time, kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, this is a line I'm not prepared, I'm not intending to cross. I want to suggest that a covenant along those lines, made in advance, made right now, would probably influence how we look at others. And what we actually walk out of this church and read and watch and listen to and engage with. But let me take this a, a little further and offer some more thoughts for reflection. The thing about lust, as you see, it thrives in privacy and isolation. And although many struggle with it at some level, the problem is we never talk about it. And so we keep our struggles, and this one included, hidden from others, despite the fact that we often feel so guilty, maybe even ashamed. And we hide our sin, or we deny it, or we never quite get round to confessing it and dealing with it ruthlessly. And so I want to suggest that, that lust's remedy requires these three things, this non-exhaustive list, these three things, community, openness, and accountability. You see, the problem with lust is that we often do try to tackle it alone. We make all sorts of resolutions. We mess up. We beat ourselves up. We dive back into it, sometimes to a deeper level, and the cycle continues. And in combating lust in our culture, it is so important to be part of a community where sex is not the constant topic of conversation, where every little innuendo doesn't get a snigger, where there's true friendship along with a clear understanding that true deep friendship between people of the opposite sex doesn't have to end up sexualized. In other words, a community like this, a church. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book on the seven deadly sins, says, the best advice then for resisting lust is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that too, but to have good friends. If we have genuine friendship in which we learn to give and receive love in a healthy and satisfying way, we will be less inclined to wander off looking for a sham substitute and quick fix. Good friendships teach us how to respect one another, to offer appropriate physical affection, to appreciate and care for others without looking for something in return, to trust one another. And in addition, there is, I believe, a place for appropriate, appropriate, please hear that word, appropriate openness and accountability as we journey alongside others in community. I know this is risky, 
and it requires a certain degree of vulnerability, but one of the very best and practical and tangible ways to address the reality of lust in our lives is to be honest with someone else or a few around us. And that might mean finding one or two close, trusted friends of the same gender who understand where we're coming from, the path of life that we are trying to lead and live. And giving them permission to ask us on a regular basis about our life, about our choices in this area, our thought life. What films, what TV programs have we watched? What magazines are we reading? What sites are we surfing? What about our relationships? What about the way we are looking at others? And the prospect of knowing we might have to own up to someone will often provide the extra restraint that stops us putting our foot on the slippery slope of indulged lust, which leads us to somewhere where none of us want to go. Don't let lust thrive in privacy and isolation. Address it in community. Address it in openness. Address it with accountability. But the starting point, and this is almost the last thing I want to say, and I know some of you are thinking, hang on a minute, there's a lot more in that. But this is almost the last thing I want to say. The starting point the first place where lust is addressed and healed is in relationship with God. The Bible teaches that God has poured his love into our hearts. And it's that love that reshapes and restores and realigns our desires in Christ. Can I say that again? It is the love of God that reshapes, restores and realigns our desires in Christ. And if we guard and we nurture that love relationship, then we will increasingly begin to see other people through God's eyes. As God sees them, never, not as objects, but as human beings made in the image of an amazing God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we give in to lust, joy in God is extinguished. And we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. It's true. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan will not fill our, us with hatred of God, but, love us, but rather with forgetfulness of God. Don't allow the enemy to cause you to forget God. Because if you can keep God and Jesus front and center, and right at the heart of your life, then it will profoundly influence how you look at other people and what you look at. Now, I know I haven't covered every base. I haven't even dealt with every issue those verses raise. And there's kind of a reason for that. But as we come to communion, let me invite you to search your heart as we prepare to eat and drink. And if lust is a clear and present danger for you at the moment, if it is, and you recognize it's distorting your desires, and it's wrecking your heart, and it's affecting your mind, and it's impacting your relationships, then use these next 10, 15 minutes around this table to ask Jesus to transform you from the inside out to reshape, 
to restore, to realign your desires and give you the ability to take this as seriously as Jesus urges us. Lust objectifies. Love dignifies. Christ satisfies. Do, do I actually believe that? Maybe that's the question. 